he's clearly a charming person and he knows how to talk to people. He's very funny, you know, and he's easy to talk to and he is disarmingly honest if you believe it. I mean, I believe it, but um, there's also an awareness with somebody like him where you're a little naive if you're not in the back of your head going like, are you trolling me? Is this for real? What are you doing? (laughs) 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. Celebration Rock Podcast, presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. So, we are not talking about Pearl Jam today. For the first time in a month, here on the Celebration Rock Podcast, we are going to be talking about a different musician. And uh, I may not even say the words Pearl or Jam at any point from here on out. Um, I had a great time doing the Vitology Allergy series. And it seemed like people seemed to like it. Uh, So I think we'll probably do that again, too, at some point. I'd like to figure out another band or artist who has a big enough career where we could delve in that deep into their career. Um, So I don't know. Keep sending me suggestions on that. We'll we'll figure something out, and we'll do that in the future. Uh, But today we're going to be talking about a new record. A record that came out on Friday, a record that I think could very well be the best record of 2017. If it's not the best, it is for sure the most 2017 record of 2017. And that is Pure Comedy by Father John Misty. And I'm guessing that if you're listening to this podcast that you have an opinion on Father John Misty. Maybe you think he's a genius, a great writer, a great musician, a fine singer. A man who's made two really good records in the last couple of years and with pure comedy might have created his magnum opus. And then there's other people listening, I'm sure, who think that Father John Misty is a charlatan, an annoying, pretentious, hipster guy with a beard. A guy who well, actually doesn't have a beard anymore. He has a mustache. He has that weird mustache now. Maybe you saw him on Saturday Night Live talking about Taylor Swift. Betting Taylor Swift inside the Oculus Rift. That song, Total Entertainment Forever. A song that created a minor stir online. People calling him him a misogynist. There are people out there who think that about Father John Misty. But I think no matter how you feel about him, um, he's one of the more fascinating singer-songwriters working today. You know, when I think about Father John Misty, I think about... I saw him perform in a Milwaukee music club opening up for phosphorescent uh this was a it was like a weekday night in probably 2010 2011 the club was half full and the people that were there were sort of half paying attention at best to the man on stage who sat on a stool playing an acoustic guitar staring down the entire time playing these beautiful songs but kind of miserable songs, you know, like just sad bastard guy, folky dude jams. When people talk about Father John Misty now being obnoxious, I think about that performance because clearly the metamorphosis that Josh Tillman made when he became Father John Misty helped his career. And I would say in in a, less, in a less cynical way. You know, the cynical thing would be to say that he made himself outrageous to become 
a bigger star. Um, I would say that he actually made himself a lot more interesting, and he made himself into this sort of provocateur slash mad commentator on the world. Uh, pure genius, uh, pure genius, pure comedy. It is pure genius, I'm going to say. I love this record, pure comedy. I'm a big fan of it. But, you know, it, it's a big record. It's a record about where we're at now in the post-Trump world. A record about the apocalypse. <laughs> Many of the songs are about the apocalypse on this record. It's a real fire and brimstone type record. You know, for all, you know, there's been this great sort of press campaign where Father John Misty's been doing a lot of interviews, talking about his own celebrity, talking about the pop music industry. Um, there hasn't been a lot of talk about what's actually on the record, um, which isn't this sort of pranksterish, ironic, wacky thing that I think people expect or they associate with Father John Misty, the, the sort of things that are part of his persona when people interview him and write about him. The record itself, um, I think, is a pretty emotional, direct, angry record. Um, I, I reviewed this record for Uproxx, and I called it the, the most misanthropic record that anyone has made since Yeezus. And it may, in fact, even be more misanthropic than Yeezus because at least on Yeezus, there is the existence of a god. I mean, the god happens to be Kanye himself, but there's still a god on that record. On pure comedy, the only sort of acknowledgement that there might be a god is that God is either this made-up idea by people who are just desperate for some sort of meaning in life, and that's the God that exists in the title track. That's the song that he played on SNL. Or else God is this sort of overmatched man-child who comes back to Earth to bring about the apocalypse as foretold in Scripture, and yet he can't do it because Earth has already been destroyed by humans. That's in the song, When the Love of God Returns, There'll Be Hell to Pay. Um, one of my other favorite songs on this record uh, is a song, this is another long title, there's a lot of long song titles on this record. It's called Things It Would Have Been Helpful to Know Before the Revolution. And this is a beautiful song. It reminds me of like John Lennon in his Imagine era, except it has like the anger of John Lennon in his Plastic Ono band era. And that's a, anyway, this is a song about how self-destruction is sort of inherent to the human experience, that this is something that happens time and again. And in the song, he writes about how climate change destroys the earth and it sends people back to caves. And for a while, people thrive in caves and they do okay, but eventually they get bored and they set about sort of recreating the same consumerist culture that we have now in order to entertain themselves. There's another great song on the record called Ballad of the Dying Man, where uh, <laughs> it's a, I think it's the funniest song on the record. I mean, this song is about a man who's dying, and he uh, checks his news feed on his social media page one last time before he dies, so he knows uh, what he's going to be missing when he goes. Um, I mean, these are really the kinds of songs that I think Randy Newman would have been writing if the internet existed in the 70s. Like, instead of Randy Newman writing whole records about racist Southerners, he would have written a record like Pure Comedy about the internet. Or maybe he would have written a record about racist Southerners on the internet. But regardless, um, I really think that the lyricism on this record, combined with the frequently beautiful music, uh, the very orchestrated music. I mean, this, this record was recorded in the same Hollywood studio that Frank Sinatra recorded at and Ray Charles. Like, it really has that kind of feel. It really makes it feel like a record of the moment. And uh, I wanted to talk about it with a friend of mine who recently interviewed Josh Tillman. Uh, her name is uh, Jillian Mapes. She works for Pitchfork. She wrote a great story for Pitchfork about, about uh, Father John Misty. So I'm excited to get into that. Before we get to that, I want to do a shout out to our sponsor for this week's episode, and that is Blue Apron. And if you listen to this podcast or you listen to other podcasts, I'm sure you've heard a lot about Blue Apron. You know that they're the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. 
and you know it's their mission to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. You know, you've heard about this service, but maybe you haven't tried it yet. Well, I'm here to tell you that you you should try it, okay? Because, like, if you're like me, you know, you work a long day, and at the end of the day, it's hard to cook a good meal. Um, you know, my wife and I, we have kids, so... You know, we're pretty exhausted at the end of the day. But with Blue Apron, they're going to send you great ingredients that you can make in about 20 minutes. And you can have these delicious meals far better than any kind of, like, freeze-dried stuff that you might be eating now. Right now, the the meals that they're going to be offering coming up include spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salada. And sweet and sour salmon with bok choy, carrot, and ginger fried rice. Um... Just great stuff. Now, if your appetite here has been stoked, okay, I have a deal for you, okay? What you want to do is you want to go to blueapron.com slash celebration, and you can check out this week's menu, and you can pick out three meals for free. And not only will you get those meals sent to your door, you will support the podcast. So everybody wins in this scenario. All you need to do is go to blueapron.com slash celebration. Again, that's blueapron.com slash celebration and you will get some delicious food sent to your house so that is blue apron um so yeah i talked to jill mapes last week uh we both talked about the record pure comedy we're both fans of it and uh we had a good time talking about josh tillman and 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 what his deal is (laughs) so if you're curious about what his deal is i think you'll enjoy this conversation so here is me and jill mapes so, Jill, uh, I'm excited to have you on. This is your second time on. By the way, I think that officially makes you a friend of the pod. Oh, my God. I've never been a friend of a podcast. Oh, my God. This is exciting. I, I, I've made up this rule right now. I've never used the phrase friend of the pod before. I've heard it on other podcasts, and I, I really like it. So I'm going to integrate it into my podcast, and uh, I'm going to call you like the first friend of the pod as like a as a repeat guest now officially. So, I'm honored. This is like the equivalent to the Five Timers Club on SNL, but you only have to be on twice to get to be a friend of the pod. So, congratulations on that. Thanks. Um, so, I wanted to have you on because uh, you know there were a lot of Father John Misty profiles, and I read every single one, or at least most of like the big ones, because you know now that Kanye is on hiatus and Noel Gallagher isn't. <laughs> doing interviews like Josh Tillman is like the champ of interviews, I think, uh, right. in, in, in music journalism. And your interview was my favorite. Oh, thank you. And I thought it was really good. Um, you set the scene for me here. Like in the intro, you talk about this. I mean, it sounds like you guys talked for a, a long time. Like you make reference at one point to being three and a half hours in. Did it yeah. go longer than that? Like how long did you guys talk? Um, oh, man, it was... I walked into the Bowery Hotel at 6 p.m., and I didn't walk out of the Bowery Hotel until, like, almost midnight. Part of that was, like, afterwards, people from, because it was the night before he played SNL, um, people from Sub Pop were in town, and his band was there, and so after we were done talking, um, his people showed up, and so started talking to them and just hanging out a little bit. Um, So we ended up, I think our interview ended up, it was probably, we probably stopped talking at like, maybe at like 10. It was definitely like a four hour interview. And it was great because at one point it was like, we were both. So we've been talking for like almost two hours and they just kept bringing us these drinks. And, uh, we both had to pee really badly and we both like leapt from the table we were at and we were like intermission. Okay. Like we both really have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and so that was kind of funny to just be like, this is going so and so long and so much that you're just like needed to take a needed to take a cooler yeah. for a second. But, I have time there. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and you say in the intro to the sort of the Q and A part of the story that like he spent like the first ninety minutes complaining about Pitchfork. <laughs> like what? Like what did he talk about exactly during that you know part of the conversation? Are you? Uh, it was like. It wasn't uh, when people, a lot of people have asked me about this and it's interesting because it wasn't terribly antagonistic. Like it was critical and it was like, you know, you got your coverage is in this way. And just somebody who's paying attention to it very closely and is like, 
why you sort of like curious about like well why are things like this or why do like you know certain elements of people's music get pointed out in news stories or why why this or why that and it it was interesting a large part of it i think related to to like where his head is at with um sort of the liberal um group think that's happening and just where we're at with that on the internet uh kind of this idea that like when you're looking at subcultures that are uh fundamentally sort of like ideologically have a base in like a liberal political point of view you have like you have changes that happen like the tones the tone of all this stuff has changed a lot in the last couple of years and he was like everything is very moral you know everything is very, there's a moral subtext to so much of liberalism now like he talks about that in the interview and what we published and he was talking about like so much of music writing is like that there's like a he he used the phrase like fake Kantian ethics, <laughs> you know. Like he was just talking about like the idea that like a lot of music writing is um, uh, it's prescriptive. It's looking about how how the world should be instead of like looking at art in more of a vacuum. And I I think he was that was a lot of what he was taking issue with um, and just taking it to like absurd heights, you know and. Um, having a little fun with it. But honestly, he, Josh's whole thing is like, this is the music that a critic would make. This is, I'm thinking like you guys, you know, and he brings up this really interesting idea that I've actually been talking about with some of my uh, musician friends lately, this idea of like how musicians think and how people who make the music thinks versus like the culture, the way the culture thinks, the way the intellectualization around the culture thinks. To me, that's fundamentally what's like at, at odds when Josh is like talking about some of this, but he's interesting because he's like obviously a fantastic musician and things like that. But he totally has the whole intellectual side of it that some musicians really don't have. They're not right. interested in like having these like kind of dorky critical conversations, you know, Oh, totally. He, he's very much there for it. And he's just like, you know, I could be a critic. I could do this. I think just like you guys. So <laughs> some of it is like bringing up specific articles and bringing up specific, like, uh, ways that people have written about him or written about other people on the site. And some of it is more like, broad so it's kind of what a lot of people have asked me like what is what does that mean father john misty is criticizing pitchfork for 90 minutes it's like josh just has a lot of opinions about this topic you know about media and the internet and i mean it's it's like all over this record so it wasn't too surprising to me because it just he's so hyper aware of like indie rock culture you know right right well and you know I, i interviewed josh five years ago when yeah. Fear Fun, it, it had just come out. So the narrative at that time, or the question was, can the drummer from Fleet Foxes change his name and have a solo career? I mean, at that point, you know, he had the song, uh, uh, that, that Hollywood Cemetery Forever song, that, uh, yeah. which I love that song. That's still like yeah. one of my favorite songs of his. But Same. I think at that time, it wasn't quite clear if he was going to stick around or if he was going to be a novelty. And I remember talking to him, and you know, at that time, he was already sort of self-mythologizing his past, mm-hmm. you know, talking about being in Fleet Foxes and then quitting the band and then getting in a van and taking a bunch of LSD and driving around the country. And he had this right. whole kind of creation you know, origin story already. But, yeah. but by and large, I found him to be a funny, uh, intelligent, you know, fairly normal guy, um, which is at odds with, I think, how people perceive him. I think people who don't like him especially view him to be this sort of like pretentious, full of himself, weirdo that, uh, you know, uses t- these $10 words and, you know, is kind of full of himself and all that. And... Uh, not that there isn't at least a little bit of truth to that perception, but I don't think it's totally true. But again, that's you know I talked to him five years ago. Like, yeah. What, like, what were your impressions of him? You know, spending four hours in a hotel talking to him. I mean, just generally, or with regards to like his mythology. Well, just so. generally. I mean, it's kind of going to like I guess just the way he is, because again, I think people perceive him in a certain way that doesn't sure. totally jive if you actually talk to him. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, he's. Um, I had a lot of people ask me after that ran. They were like, "Was this? Was this really tense? Was he like 
a jerk to you. And it's like he's he you know how people are when they like to argue and they just have like if they are not an asshole about it, they just have sort of like an amiability because they like. You know, they argue with people. They understand, like, that there's a balance between you can't be, like, a dick about it. You know, you have to, like, if you're going to be argumentative, it has to be in the spirit of conversation and the spirit of, like, discourse, not in the spirit of you're wrong and I'm right and fuck you. You right. know what I mean? It's, right. And that's the thing that I think is I want people to understand about Josh is, like, he's not talking to him. I it was almost like reading the transcript back was more like you, I saw the extent of how critical he was because talking to him is, is much more like enjoyable. Like he's clearly a charming person and he knows how to talk to people. He's very funny, you know, and he's easy to talk to and he is disarmingly honest if you believe it. I mean, I believe it, but um, there's also an awareness with somebody like him where, you're a little naive if you're not in the back of your head going like, are you trolling me? Is this for real? What are you doing? You know, but I will say like definitely um, kept that in mind, but I, I find, I don't know. I find Josh to be like open and fairly honest um, about things and it, you know, pleasant to talk to. There aren't a lot of musicians I would say that I could talk to, for four hours straight, you right. know, and have really like, you know, what do you mean by this? And sort of arguing, you know, and sort of like a lot of the conversation going in circles of like, by the end, we were circling back to things we had talked about in the beginning and just, you know, it, it just, he's a person first. And I always appreciate that about talking to like anybody who has any amount of like public eye when they're just like, I'm a person and this is what I think. And I'm not afraid to alienate some people because of what I think. And that's, I respect that. I really respect that. I do respect that a lot about Josh. Just like he knows that some stuff he says is like, people are really going to not like him for it, but he's still going to say it, you know? Right. Right, totally. I, to circle back to your point earlier about uh, how he, you know, if if a music critic were to make music, it would be akin to like what a record like Pure Comedy is. I have to say, after reading a lot of his recent interviews, that he is one of my favorite music critics right now. Like he is one of the people I want to hear talk about contemporary music, not because I always agree with him, I, just because I think he's interesting and he's sort of saying things that a lot of people aren't saying, especially vis-a-vis pop music and how pop music is discussed now. I mean, you touched on this before about sort of like the how everything has a moral component now. You know, the idea yeah. that you are judged on being a good person or you're being yeah. perceived as a good person and how that reflects on your art. Whereas if you're a person who maybe kind of delves into dark topics or you're, you're a bit messy, messier as a personality, that yeah. for some reason that kind of reflects poorly on your music. For you, did any of the things that he talked about in the interview uh, ring true? I mean, he talked a lot about sort of writing for pop stars and being inside the sausage factory. I think that was the phrase that he used. He was pretty critical of that. Yeah. Like, what were your feelings, your impressions of that uh, as you were talking to him? Well, okay. He, I can't, you know, like validate the if he is you know, correct when he says things like pop stars are slaves. And I think that (laughs) when he says stuff like that, it's pretty extreme. And like, I'm sure that's, uh, there is a shade of that. That's true. The phrasing of it could, you know, alarmed some people that I will say that's not how I would phrase it, but I don't think that he is necessarily wrong about that. And certainly he has more view in inside of it in an honest way than I could ever have, you know, like, interviewing pop stars or writing about them or following them like he is inside of it he knows how they see i mean ostensibly like working with them he has more of a sense of their mindset than i do i don't think he's wrong about that i think he's true and i think that it's um i'm in i'm amused when somebody is not afraid to say i don't care to participate in your craven commercialism i have what i have with sub pop or wherever if he was on any other indie label or whatever, and and to say, I don't fuck with this. I, I respect that, and I think that he is, like, totally in the right to do that. A lot of the stuff he calls out about, like, you know, indie bands going to major labels, doing car commercials, doing this and that, like, you know, we've reached a point where I think sellout is a word that doesn't 
doesn't mean as much as it used to. And I'm not saying that's totally a bad thing. I think it's just a little bit like, well, there's no money. There's no money money in the music industry, so people have to get it however they're going to get it. And as long as the art is good, it doesn't matter. To me, I think that's kind of the millennial, like, viewpoint on it versus Gen X being very, like, fucking sell out, you know? And I so I think that, like, kind of where Josh is at with that is a bit more Gen X than than the kids. I think a lot of the kids are like, <laughs> you know, I think it's like, oh, cool. Like this brand gave this person that I think is dope a bunch of money to make some cool art thing. Why do I care if it has some sponsor on it so long as the art exists? And I totally see what he's talking about. Like I totally know what he means. And I think it's just jarring to people because even bands that have a line and a lot of bands have a line like when you inter- I mean you know this I'm sure when you talk to bands of a certain stature that's always a question that comes up at least for me it's like what's your line like when right. I interviewed Beach House their line was like I don't want to do car commercials and I don't want to get bigger I want to stay where I'm at when I interviewed Angel Olsen it was like I don't I would only do uh, a commercial if I had a kid and I need them you know what I mean like everyone has a different line and I I think that it's admirable to say, like, this is my line and it's firm. And I can't say that I, you know what I mean? That's just a personal choice. But um, Well, and you're right. There are lines, but, like, I don't think there's anyone that has foregrounded it to the degree that he has. Like, No, no, exactly. Like where, where he's, like, actually made that a part of his songs. Where he, right. Or as a critique of, like, other people. You know, this idea that, and I think you're right, you know, the millennial idea that, you know, I think that is sort of a generational thing that if you can make money and still do the thing you want to do, it doesn't matter where the money comes from. And I think that's a pragmatic point of view, given where the music industry is at. You Mm -hmm. know, it's not the 90s where if you did do a commercial, it was sort of like, well, aren't you already making enough money from record sales? And you you, you could actually say that to a band. Um, But, you know, there is also, you know, we've kind of reached such an extreme with that where... You're sort of not even allowed to critique that anymore, you know, yeah, where it's just exactly. sort of like where people just sort of roll their eyes if you yeah. talk about that at all, um, which I think is interesting. You know, like I said before, like I, I read a lot of the profiles, if, if not all of them, I read most of them. And, you know, one of the things that made your stand out, aside from you just doing a great job with it, was that most of the profiles were written by men. I think <laughs> Pace was... Bonnie Sternberg of, yeah. uh, from Pace did, did uh, interviewed him, but I think like New York Times, LA Times, The Guardian, Financial Times, I, I think it was all men. And uh, in one, one way, I think, where your story was different because you came from a, from a female perspective was, you know, there's a moment in your story where uh, Tillman says something about how there's no such thing as the... <sighs> patriarchy yeah. and, and, and the way that you write it you, you sort of imply that he was being kind of dismissive of you for even suggesting that there would be saying like oh you know don't be willfully ignorant don't be yes. willfully ignorant or something like that and you know there there is there are these questions with him involving you know women and obviously there was that yeah. line in total entertainment forever about taylor swift which personally i feel like if you listen to that song it's not endorsing the idea of virtual reality sex no. with a pop star. It's, it's, it's using that as, as an example of this sort of hellish media landscape. But, you know, he must have known on some level that people would hear that line and react to it. Um, yeah. I'm wondering, like, what are your feelings about him vis-a-vis women? Do you feel like there is any misogyny in his music or uh, his persona? Where, like, what are your feelings on that? Well, I will say straight out, if I thought somebody was, like, a straight-up, like, terrible misogynist, I wouldn't, like, spend that amount of time (laughs) open-heartedly engaging with them and listening to them, like, talk a lot, you know? Like, I would just, like, bounce. I mean, I think what it comes down to for me in the music is, and I get at this in the story, but I think it's such an apt, like, example of, of, uh, like, take a song, um like hold on i'm trying to remember what it is the one off the last record where he is um talking at the line uh the night josh tillman came to our apartment with the line about you know the whole the whole song is like josh putting all of his like 
his hatred or judgment or whatever, like the full, like verbal brute of him and his his brain towards like just mocking this like groupie type who he finds completely insufferable, making jokes about her, just totally ripping her to shreds, and then the punchline being, well, you know. I oblige later on when you beg me to choke you. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I hate you, but I still slept with you. And that makes <laughs> me repugnant. And I totally see both sides of it where, uh, you know, like somebody who hates him would be like, that's so misogynistic. And people who are his fans, who are defenders are like, that's the entire point. You know, like it's commentary on it. And so it gets a little hazy because, you know, you can intellectualize anything. You can take anything that that is an example of something and say, well, it was done consciously and it's done winkingly and it was done, you know, purposely and it wasn't done totally earnestly. And this is making a point and I'm a little torn on it. Like, I think that these things are completely done. You know, these, these sentiments are certainly, um, done with the point of mocking things. Like there's an awareness there. It's not that I I think they're inadvertent, and then people create intellectualized reasons to justify them. Like, that's the thing with Misty. Like, you were just saying, like, he's my favorite. He's one of my favorite, like, music critics right now. Like, he's totally aware of the intellectual um, stuff around these things that he's saying. So knowing that, it's hard for me to, like, take some of these parts that people isolate in his songs or, like, the Taylor Swift line and say, well, that's deeply misogynistic just because... It's like it's misogynistic, and it's that's kind of the point of it. And well, whether you think that he's allowed to do that, or if it's working, if it's effective, if he's correct in his critiques, that's a totally other conversation. Purpose, personally, I think the Taylor Swift line. I was like, totally like, I see where you're going for here. Like, I see what you're going for here, and I'm actually not surprised that like the internet didn't freak out about it. Like I'm sure the people that the people that just hate him just it gave them more reason to hate him, but it wasn't like a huge moment of like burn him at the stake, you know what I mean <laughs> right, and that is sort of you know when we talk about artists like this, you know there is that element of controversy, but you know he does get really great reviews and he's been yeah. rewarded, so it's not like he's you know by by being provocative or putting himself in a position where uh, people dislike him. It's not like it's hurt his career. I mean, I, fe- I think, you know, one thing that's been lost maybe in how we talk about pop music now is that I think the greatest pop stars of all time have always put themselves in a position where they could be hated by some yeah. people. You know, like where they were yeah. willing, to, like, you know, whether it's uh, John Lennon or Madonna or Prince or, you know, Eminem or anybody, you know, these sort of iconic people, you know, they were always willing to go there at times. Yeah. Like Kanye West being probably the best <laughs> example of the last 10 years. Sure. Um, and that's why we're so interested. I mean, like, when I when I wrote my review, I likened the record to Yeezus just in that I think Pure Comedy is the most misanthropic record that I've mm-hmm. heard since Yeezus. Um, and mm, I, would, it, I might agree with that. You know, it, it, you know, and we can kind of maybe segue into talking about the, the record here because, yeah. you know, a lot of the profiles that were written about about Misty were, you know, sort of preoccupied with the celebrity aspect, mm-hmm. sort of the internet culture aspect. Uh, but when you actually listen to the record, I mean, those things are on there. But this is really a much broader record about sort of culture, and it's yeah. it, it's like a fire and brimstone sermon about, <laughs> I mean, about the apocalypse, basically. I mean, it, totally. I mean, people have made this connection and various stories about him. I think this was in your story too. I mean, he had this very serious religious upbringing yeah. that, he re- that he rejected, but there is still an element of that, I think, and how he sees the world. There is a moral element, this idea that like this world might be too far gone to be saved. Yeah. Like that pervades the songs on this record. And there, I think what redeems it is that it's such a beautiful record in a lot of ways. And, and also that he's a I think he's a great writer. He's he has a lot of flair. Like that Taylor yeah. Swift line, no matter what you want to say about it, it's a clever line. Taylor Swift and Oculus Rift, rhyming those. That, that's a pretty clever thing to do, I think. Yeah, um, totally. I don't. I mean, we were talking about this over email. Yeah. And I think we're on the same page with this. But like, I mean, your feelings on this have kind of evolved, right? This on this record. 
A little bit, and I think part of it is the is that it's um, it's a really uh, crazy record to listen to for the first time because part of it is like, holy shit, somebody made a record this long, this intense, this you know sort of wide ranging about humanity, like you were getting at. You know, like it just is in a lot of different directions versus like Honey Bear was definitely like this goes to some insane places, but it's all under kind of a cohesive umbrella, a cohesive, like, a, a storyline. It's working through something, you know, and this is just in a lot of different directions, you know, and it's just, I think when I first heard it, I was, like, so kind of overwhelmed by it, you know, and that, and then you take a lot of time and you listen to it and you, you really dig into the lyrics and you dig into, like, every single song and, and, um, it's not that it wears off, but it, you know, you know how sometimes you listen to a record a lot and it's like you wear into it and you sort of like, how do I put it? Like you're, you're just grooving to it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you're like I've processed what this means and I've like done that and I'm like, I'm just enjoying the music now and I don't know that this is a record that I will ever get to that point with. And I don't think that's what Josh wants. Like, I don't, it's not a record that you can really ignore what he's saying or not feel the weight of it. And I think that's what makes it the most different to me among his, I mean, he's only put out, you know, two Misty records, but it felt really different to me because so many of the songs are like stripped back and they're just so long and like, you're you're confronted with all the stuff he's saying and that's like a huge part of it versus like i think the first record i mean the first record he was like less um trying to go for like a big overarching point i think but that was a little bit like people could totally zone out and not even really listen to the lyrics and just be like this guy's got a great voice he can clearly write a great melody you know and they could just not pay attention to the zanier stuff there and then honey bear was like a bit more like forcing you to you to confront the truth bombs that he is dropping. And, but this record is like, yeah, you can't just listen to it and ignore that. And so I think for me, when I say like, I don't know that it's like, I'm going to keep listening to it for the rest of the year. It's like, I spent a lot of time with it and it's like, you know what I mean? It's not something that you can listen to and be like on autopilot with it. Yeah, I I would agree with that. It, you know, I had a similar experience to you in that, like the first time I heard it, it just seemed like all the songs sounded the same and that they were all mm-hmm. mid-tempo, stately ballads. Where, like you say, the music on many songs is sort of scaled back. Yeah. Where, uh, like the song "Leaving L.A.", for instance, where, I mean, the music on there, I mean, the the, the orchestrations on that on that song are, are beautiful. Oh, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think of the, the composer that, uh, Oh, Gavin Breyer. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Which is beautiful, but you know, still primarily like a, like a voc like a, a lyrics based song. And it seems like it's scaled back in a way. So you are going to hear what he's saying. And, and, and that song, yeah. I mean, that song by itself feels like a record. It feels like oh an EP God. in the middle of it. It's kind of touching on everything where, you know, I mean, one thing I find fascinating in that song, and this I think is true in a lot of his interviews, is that he has this self-reflexive tendency to acknowledge the criticisms that people make of him as a way mm-hmm. to diffuse criticism. Yes. And and in a way, like listening to this record, it's sort of like watching a movie with the commentary track on there where you could like, because like, it's almost like he's commenting on his own record as it's going yeah. along. And, 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 and Leaving LA has that moment where he talks about you know, like another white guy in 2017 who takes everything too seriously. And, you know, that tendency of his, I feel like that's so common in sort of the internet culture. Like people, like I do that in social media. I think a lot of people do that. Like where you, you feel like in a way, if you, if you point out things that you're insecure about with yourself, that you feel like other people can't call you out on it then. You know, totally. Like, oh my God, that's so real. Yeah. And so there's almost like a meta thing to that. I feel like, like when he did that, I related to it because I could see what he was doing, but I also felt like, okay, but this tendency that he has, it's such a common thing. Mm-hmm. So there's what he's doing, and there's also like the subtext of what he's doing. Um, well, right. And you're one. You. I think that's part of what. Um, 
people who don't like him, I can see how they're like, you know, um, revealing your your weaknesses or or revealing the the things about yourself that bother other people and being self aware about them. They don't. It doesn't absolve you of them. You know, just knowing them doesn't absolve you of them. And that's a criticism I've heard about about him and his music and the thing, you know, his the things he points out. And like, that's valid. I think that's, that's right. Valid. That's totally valid. And that's valid of any creator that is self-aware. People say that kind of stuff about Lena Dunham all the time. It's like just because you know, <laughs> and you don't like do certain things to change certain aspects, but you have an awareness. Like, does that absolve you? Like. It just depends on if you're on the side of good faith or bad faith about whatever person it is. You know what I mean? Like, or, or if like I mean, you are who you are. You know, and it's like yeah. he he can't change who he is. All he can do is express his point of view in the most artful way possible. Like that. You yeah. Know? So that would be my response to that. I guess. I mean, if if someone is like, well, I don't want to listen to a white guy with a beard talk about the world and how depressing it is. That's a totally valid point of view. But I do think, um, I don't know. I think with a record like this, because I, cause I'm kind of like with you, I mean, I, I went through a weird sort of cycle with this record where I wasn't sure how I felt about it for like a couple of weeks. Yeah. And then I really kind of delved into it and, gave it a lot of attention and I yeah. really fell in love with it and it really I found it really moving yeah um just because it is one of those records where like listening to it made me feel like how I felt on election night you oh, know sure. when, when you felt like the world was ending and it was like and now since then you know you kind of continue to live your life and you you know you're on social media and you see these terrible stories about the world and everything that's happening, but you're trying yeah. to normalize it in your own brain and just spending time with this record. It kind of like brought me back and being like, Oh, okay. He's bringing me back down, which I think is probably what he wants to do with this record. Yeah. Um, but you know, I feel like he does it in a very artful way. I think he's a great writer and I think he's a great musician. So, but, it, but kind of like you, I'm not sure if I'm going to want to, hear it in three months I, I i feel like for like april of 2017 this record is a masterpiece but mm -hmm. in may 2017 will it still be i don't know uh it might yeah. it might be one of those like short-term masterpieces but yes. i feel like it captures this moment in time kind of perfectly no it definitely captures what's happening now and that's part of what i think is remarkable is that he wrote he was mastering it like a month before the election, like Josh, I think is just tapped into what is happening in culture. I mean, I don't know. He says he doesn't like to go on the internet, but I don't really believe that, you know? <laughs> right. Um, I think he just is, he can't shut it off. I think he's always paying attention. And well, that song Ballad of the Dying Man, which oh is like, God. which is like, like a, a brilliant satire. I mean, like, right. you know, which I feel like it, like if Randy Newman wrote a song about the internet, he'd write that song. Like this, Oh, totally. This idea of like a guy who is, he's on his deathbed and he's, going to check his news feed one more time to see what he's going to miss when he dies. Like, that's I a, love that. Yeah. I love that idea. And that's so sharp and real. And so much of this, yeah, is very relatable if you are of a really specific mindset. I guess I think like the people who aren't of this mindset, if they don't, you know, like a lot of what Josh t talks about is like a little, is a bit inside baseball. You know what I mean? Like some, some of these songs I look at and I'm like, how much could this appeal uh, beyond the circle of people who are like already know who he is, already know what his deal is, and I think part of that is deliberate. You know, like he talks about even on Leaving L.A., which is cr a crazy song, like like chorusless, you know, ten verses, like completely insane fan fiction, this, not even fan fiction, like dystopian, like this what I this is what I could do to blow up my career, kind of like thing, and I love it, but. He even talks about like the bros or whoever that like him, and they're like, "Oh man, his new stuff really makes me want to die." Like, you know, I think that there's um, making a record like this is kind of like putting a cap on your audience a little bit. Like, this is a record that isn't like I'm trying to take it to the next level. It's like I'm trying to isolate some people. That's what this record says to me. <laughs> Where do you think he's going to go from here? I mean, obviously, we don't know. I, I, it's my understanding that he's already written his next record and. Uh, 
yeah, so I mean, and he's already like he's already written his next record, and yeah. he's kind of thinking about the record after that. But I mean, do you do you see him as an artist that's going to stick around, or is he a guy that you know is maybe of the moment of this sort of internet obsessed moment, but maybe in five years it won't matter as much? This is what I think is so fascinating: is this like he is such a time capsule of this moment of a specific um, culture of a specific group of people that. Um, there is the potential that he his music could, you know, maybe not age well. But at the same time, I think it could also be the kind of music that is very representative of a time and a place and a mindset and uh, can be held up as like, yeah, this is this is what the ideal you know the ideology around this whole stuff was back then. And I think it I think that there's a chance that it could be kind of hold up like that. Um, but in terms of where he goes in the future, you know, his last record was so about intimacy and love, and that's a huge theme, and he managed to do it in a personal way. And I think this record is a little wider. I mean, he has beautiful personal moments, um, of course. I love when he's talking about... um, uh, I mean, so much of Leaving L.A. is really personal when he's talking about, like, the... Um, choking in J.C. Penney's and hearing the Fleetwood Mac song. He has all these, like, lovely little personal things, like, tucked in, but I think that he went he went even bigger. Like, he went so much towards humanity on this record that I just, I don't know if he can go wider than that. So it's hard for me to see how he makes something that is, like, that does this kind of thing. I just, I guess I feel like I don't really know what, what the next concept record would be for Misty. I'm like, you did love and intimacy, you know, around getting married and you did like politics and humanity and online culture and the ideological prisons that we've created for ourselves on this. And I'm like, I, I, I honestly think like, I can't see him going. Like, I just don't know where he goes in terms of like, okay, here's my, like, global, (laughs) my global record about, like, I don't know, global politics or something. Like, I can't see him doing, doing that and being like, let's, let's make jokes about Syria. Like, I don't (laughs) think he's going to go wider. Oh, that'd be wild. That would be wild and he would be, that would be. (laughs) His jokes about Syria record. Oh my God. I mean, I, I think, you know, the advantages that he has over a lot of indie musicians, virtually all indie musicians really, is that one, he's a real musician. Yeah. Two, he's a real singer. Three, I think he's a good-looking guy. He has charisma. You know, yeah. as much as he rails against pop stars, he is a pop star, or as much as, or semi-pop star anyway. He's a front man. He's, he, you know, yeah. And he, and he, and again, he has that ability to get under people's skin, which I think is a, uh, a real sort of quality of a pop star. Like if you, totally. can get, you can get under people's skin in a good way or a bad way. You're a pop star. Um, so I think. I think he can stick around if he can hold it together. I, I really think that he has the talent to do it. I mean, he could be a, a talk show host if he wanted to. I oh, mean, who, totally. Who knows what direction he will go in. But I think, um, you know, I could see his next record being him and a piano singing, you know, love songs to his wife. I mean, he could do a record like that and pull it off and, you know, or he could he could do like what Bob Dylan is doing now, covering standards sure. with orchestras and sell a million records to like, 70 year old women and men you know do that kind of thing so i think he i think he can do a lot of different things um so i'm curious to see where he goes next but yeah this does seem like sort of you know a grand statement i don't know how much grander you get than pure talent. yeah the zenith of misty like you know <laughs> the, the er misty record yeah, um, yeah, totally. Like, this is the most Misty Misty will get that I'm like, okay, so the next Misty record is maybe like, I don't know, I could see him going in some different musical direction where he's like, okay, this is more of a rock record or something, you know, and it's more like, I always think that content and what he's talking about and singing about, like, the last two records have shown you that that is like very important to him, that he's a writer with a real strong point of view. And I think that content will continue to like rule over him, over aesthetics, but I could see him making, making records that delve into aesthetics slightly more, or just, do you know what I mean? Like the first one was a little bit more about like the sonic landscape of the whole thing than it was about confronting people with 
a lyrical, like, this is the story, this is the, this is the arc, you know, and I could see him doing that. And, but I do think that whatever he does, because he's so adamant on staying on like, um, independent label and having his lines that he has about what he's doing and what he's not doing. Um, I think it will continue to be like aggressively weird in some way, <laughs> right. whether, what? whether it's like lyrically, like coming on strong or it's like, um, something completely insane musically. Well, that's what I mean about the standards record. That's why I think, yeah. or like not even like Bob Dylan, like the Rod Stewart records, like a really syrupy record. I could see him just being like, okay, I'm going to do something totally different and, and like sort of passe just yeah. to, you know, just because it means something to me, but it'll also, you know, enrage people and, and, and confuse them. Um, either way, I'm excited to see what he does next. And, uh, yeah. And if you're not a fan of Misty, I still think put this record in Spotify at least once. Cause it's, yeah. it's definitely one of the more singular records. There's no other record like this that's probably no. going to come out in 2017. So No one could make a record like this. That's the <laughs> thing about Misty. Like You will never think a Misty song is somebody else's song. Right. Well, Jill, you are a true friend of the pod. This was a great conversation. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. We will oh, have you cool. on again soon. Thank you for having me. All I right. appreciate All it. All right. Take care. All right. All right. That was me and Jillian Mapes talking about Father John Misty. The record, Pure Comedy, is out now. I recommend checking it out. As I said um, in that conversation, I think it's the best album of 2017 so far. I don't know if I'm going to feel that way in a couple months. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm very curious to see how this record ages. But right now, this record uh, means a lot to me. It really moved me a lot. Um, and if you want to know more about what I think about this record, uh, I wrote a review for Uproxx. That's where I'm the cultural critic, by the way. If you want to ever check out my writing, I should mention that more often on this podcast. I'm going to start doing that. You will find my complete thoughts on pure comedy uh, in that review. Um, before we go, I also want to give one more shout-out to our sponsor this week. That is Blue Apron. Again, if you are a listener of this podcast, you can take advantage of a great deal. If you just go to blueapron.com slash celebration, uh, you can go and pick out three meals, which will be sent to your door for free. So I think you want to get on that. Uh, guys, thanks again for listening. Um, it's been great talking about something non-Pearl Jam related. I'm sure I'll be missing Pearl Jam, though, by next week. I'm, I'm already starting to feel some, some withdrawal from not talking about Pearl Jam. But we have many great non-Pearl Jam related topics coming up in the weeks ahead. So thanks again, guys, for listening. Uh, we'll talk to you later.